Welcome to Stanford Memorial Church. My name is Jane Shaw. I'm the Dean for Religious Life, and it's a great pleasure to welcome our speaker today, Todd, Ted Koppel. And for me, um, it's always incredibly thrilling to have the opportunity to interview a journalist and daunting to interview someone who has actually done 6,000 interviews in his time. So we'll do our best here today. Mr. Carpel spent 26 years as anchor and managing editor of Nightline. He was the longest serving news anchor in US broadcast history. He's a Stanford alum, having received his master's He received his master's degree here in communication in 1962, and he met his wife here, Grace Ann Dorney Koppel, and we're really thrilled you're here today, Grace Ann. Thank you. So this is something inspiring for students, because immediately after graduating, Mr. Koppel became intensely involved in witnessing and covering some of the major events um, of the second half of the 20th century. So he graduated in 1962, and in 1963, he was covering John F. Kennedy's funeral. Then in 1965, he covered Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery. Then in 1968, he covered Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. And his career went from there, from strength to strength. He was with Mikhail Gorbachev inside the Kremlin on the last day of the Soviet Union. He was the very first journalist to interview Nelson Mandela at his home in Soweto, South Africa, after Mr. Mandela had been released from 27 years in prison. Not surprisingly, Mr. Koppel has received an enormous number of honors. In fact, I think he is the most honored reporter in ABC's history. He's received eight Peabody Awards, 12 Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Awards, which is the television equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize, and 42 Emmy Awards, including one for lifetime achievement. He has written for many newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and he has also written books, including most recently, Lights Out, which was a bestseller on the New York Times in 2015, examining and evaluating potential ways for America to prepare for a cyber catastrophe. That seems pretty important for these days. So he's on campus this quarter, and he was on campus for part of last quarter too, as the 2018 Haas Center Distinguished Visitor. We are really honored, Mr. Koppel, that you would come and have a conversation with us about two kinds of themes we often have conversations about here. What matters to you and what it means to lead a meaningful life. Can we can we pretend that we're on a first-name basis? Yeah, okay. Good. See, really, we're both British. That's the thing. Yes. So I'm going to start by saying Mr. Koppel repeatedly until he says, you can call me Ted. You can uh, call me Ted. Thanks. You can call me Jane. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start by asking, what's it like to be back at Stanford now? For it's, both of you. It's, it's really lovely. But I must tell you, Jane, the most extraordinary thing, I keep forgetting how long ago 1960 was, which mm. is when we were here, and I found that the best way to do it is to, in my own mind, put myself back in 1960 and pretend that I'm talking to a journalist who was there in 1902. 
which is the equivalent of what it must be like for an undergraduate to talk to me these days. You know, I, I talk about these events that occurred, and, and you, you skipped over one minor event yes. in my career, the Vietnam War. That's true. I was <laughs> yes. going to ask you a bit about that later, actually. Well, that's fine. Yeah. We can talk about that later. It's, uh, you know, I keep, I keep remembering things that happened in the early 60s and the mid-60s and the late 60s, uh, and sometimes I'm impatient when a 19 or 20-year-old doesn't have the same vivid recollection of what happened 30 years before they were born. Um, so, yes, it's wonderful being back, but I've had to adjust to the fact that I am no longer 22 years old. Yeah. How has the campus changed? Um, the, the essential parts, Memorial Church and Hoover Tower and the Quad, uh, look blessedly the same. Other parts are not quite as blessed. Would you like to elaborate on that or not really? No, no. Okay. <laughs> we'll move swiftly along. So you are British by birth. Tell I us am. a little bit about your childhood and upbringing and who had a big influence on you. Well, um, I should point out my, my parents were German Jewish yeah. refugees who came to England in 19... My father came in 1937, my mother came in 1938. Uh, I was born in England in 1940. I'll do the math for you, 78. Um, and um, because my parents went back to Germany after the war in 19, about 1950 uh, for restitution for both of them to try and regain some of the property that they had lost to the Nazis uh, in the late 30s. Uh, I went to boarding school in England when I was 11. Um, if you've never read Tom Brown's School Days, I recommend it to you. It's, uh, it, it, it rather vividly captures the horrors of a British boarding school. Um, <laughs> I, I, did you go to boarding school? No, I went to a day school, happily. A day school. Yeah. Um, boarding schools, uh, the, uh, the British have a tendency to send their children to boarding school very young. I mean, there are some kids who quite literally go off to boarding school when they're six, seven, eight years old. Um, it's a pretty horrible experience. It really is. Uh, we still had, in those days, we still had a system of prefects, uh, the prefects were usually seniors uh, who had gained some prominence at the school, and they were entitled to have their own fags. Now, a fag in, in English boarding school terminology does not mean the same thing that it does uh, in, in the sort of obscene American language when we're talking. A fag is simply a young boy, in this case usually someone 11 or 12 years old who was assigned to the prefect to make his bed, fix his toast, uh, you know, do whatever chores need to be done. Uh, and in those days, if you didn't do it to the satisfaction of the prefect, uh, you could still be caned. Um, so uh, these were, you know, this after all was 1950, 1951. Uh, it was still pretty medieval in those days. Any redeeming figures there? 
Any redeeming? Yeah, anyone who actually was an inspiration to you or not really? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> so when did you come to America? When were you redeemed by coming to America? I was, I was redeemed by coming to America in 1953. <clears throat> I, was, I was almost 14 and uh, went to high school in New York. Uh, and I'm sorry, I mean, here we are in this, in this holy setting, but I have to point out um, that um, what General George Patton once noted in a speech that he gave in London, uh, that England and America are two great countries separated by a common language, uh, is absolutely true. Um, there were well, I can't really use it here, but let me just say, uh, I, I was the object of considerable amusement to New York high school students when I showed up with my broad English accent uh, and using some terms that were simply unfamiliar to them. Yeah, so you were teased a bit. A little bit, yes, but nothing like boarding school. It's, so you were glad I to will get say, I mean, the, the, the one virtue of a British boarding school is um, that anything short of being sent to a maximum security prison um, <laughs> is fairly easy to handle after that. So you drew on that when you had some difficult, you know, assignments Indeed. as a reporter, okay. Yes. So, so tell us... You know, we run this program called What Matters to Me and Why, where we invite faculty and staff and others to reflect on that. So tell us maybe three things that matter to you and why. Um, I, I will tell you that um, Dean Shaw is, is a very kind and gentle person. And we met, what, about four or five, six weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and she actually gave me a heads up on what some of these questions would be. And this was one of them. Uh, and the, the answers I gave her at the time, you know, what matters to me, I put them in, in the order of priority that I think people expect to hear. And then after several weeks of, of reflection, uh, it has occurred to me that I was really dishonest with myself. Um, you know, what I said was that my wife in particular came first, family as a unit came second, uh, and uh, I think I also mentioned ethics and the job. In point of fact, I worked for ABC for 43 years, and um, to be absolutely honest about where the priorities lay, in reality, it was the job that always took priority. Uh, and the more I thought about it, Jane, the more it occurs to me that I think we, we all have a tendency to do this. Yes. I mean, as we, as we look at students here at Stanford, for example, what are we preparing them for? Are we preparing them to, to, to be good husbands, good wives, good parents? Not really. I mean, what we're really preparing them for is some great professional breakthrough. We're preparing them perhaps to be great lawyers, great doctors. But the whole focus of a university is on 
not the not the ethical side of your life. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that ethics are not an important part of the of the educational process, but we don't really prepare people to put family first. In this country, in particular, and we're very career oriented, the tendency is to put that career first. That's what we're focusing on. That's what we're preparing our young people for. Uh, and maybe, maybe, and, and you're well-suited, tragically, you'll be doing it at Oxford, not here. Um, but I think it might be appropriate to put more of an emphasis on reminding people that 40, 50 years hence, they may come to regret the fact that they didn't spend more time on family. So that's why we run these programs, actually, Good. so that we can enable uh, people like you and people who are faculty and staff here to talk about, actually, what does lead to a meaningful life? So maybe that leads into that question. What I mean, clearly your life has had enormous meaning, but what for you, how would you want to reflect on that, on that now at the age of 78? You, you've begun to do it a bit, but let me encourage you to do it more. Well, um, I did put ethics in there. Uh, you did? I think, I, where did I put it, third? Yes. yes. He, these were the three things he gave me. Family, with Grace Anne as super number one. Work as a journalist, you never wanted to do anything else, you said. It's been That's hugely true. rewarding. Yep. And thirdly, you put ethics and then brackets, not religion. Right. <laughs> um, I think perhaps more and more, I mean, if you, if you give ethics the broadest possible definition, I think we could agree that that could appropriately be at the head of almost everyone's list. I mean, after all, if we act in an ethical manner, whether it's professionally or toward our families or uh, toward other people who depend upon us, uh, you can't go too far wrong. Uh, so maybe that needs to be up at the top of the list. And do you think that universities need to be better at instilling that into their... I'm sorry? Do you think that universities need to be more upfront, therefore, about preparing students for a very, very messy world these days? Well, uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know what the curriculum is now for undergraduates. I know when I was an undergraduate, uh, the first course as freshmen that we were required to take was philosophy. Uh, and that was divided into two parts, logic and ethics. Mm. Um, is that still the case, do you no, know? No, definitely not. No. It, it, it should be. Um, I, I think that you know, we, can, we can still afford to learn a great deal from the great moral principles that were set forth by, uh, by some of the world's great philosophers. Now, perhaps we should be uh, you know, less Eurocentric than we were uh, 1956, what am I talking about now, 60, no, 50, 60, 60 some odd years ago, yeah. Yep. When I went to, when I first went to uh, undergraduate school, uh, you know, I think it would be wonderful if we studied the, the ethical teachings of, of other 
cultures, not simply our own, but the notion of, of being exposed to great ethical principles when, when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, I think that has real value, perhaps really more so than these days. So we'll come to these days in a moment, but, but let's talk a little <laughs> bit about ethics and journalism, which might bring us speedily to these days. It'll bring us very speedily, yeah. yes. So t tell us a little bit about the values in journalism that matter to you. Look, I, I, like to, I like to draw the analogy between good journalism and good cartography. A good map takes you unerringly from point A to point B, even though it is a very simple representation of a much larger and more complex reality. Good journalism does the same thing. A good journalist can cover a speech or an event or a crisis uh, and do it in such a way that if he is a print journalist or if she is a broadcast journalist, they can do it in a, a really tiny representation of the actual event, but do it in such a fashion that you're left with the correct impression. It's not brain surgery, but it is a profession. It really does require training. It is also all, all popular evidence to the contrary notwithstanding. It is also a team effort for the most part. I'm not suggesting that there aren't some journalists who work by themselves, but by and large, journalism requires the, the work of editors, fact checkers in television, producers. I worked with a team of 40 people at Nightline to put together that nightly program of, of half an hour. Now, all 40 people weren't working on each program at all times. Some of them were working on advanced programs, but um, we all were committed to giving the most accurate representation that we could in the time that we had available to us. And when we made a mistake, and let's face it, journalism is replete with mistakes. And that is a, it is a significantly different thing than talking as the president frequently does about fake journalism. In journalism, we operate under deadlines. Those deadlines these days are briefer than they ever were. Uh, at Nightline, we worked on a 24-hour deadline. We got through with one program, and sometimes we began preparing the next one. Now, on occasion, uh, major events would happen at 10 o'clock at night. Nightline was on at 11.30 on the East Coast. Uh, we would frequently tear up the program that we had prepared and starting all over again in the course of 90 minutes, we would put another program together. Every effort was turned toward making that program as accurate as possible. But I think you can understand that the, the shorter the deadline, the more likely it is that you're going to make mistakes. 
There is a simple remedy to that. On the next program, as soon as we discovered that we had made a mistake, I would at the top of the program, not buried down at the bottom, but at the top of the program, I would say, yesterday we said or did such and such. That turned out to be inaccurate. I'd like to make a correction. We did. We got it out of the way. Uh, I've, I've perhaps oversimplified what journalism needs to be, but if you make it as accurate as you can and you confess to whatever mistakes you have made, that's about as good as you're going to get. So what you, tell us what your main concerns about journalism are today. Um, I'm most worried about the democratization of journalism. Um, you have to understand, and I'll be delivering a a full lecture on this subject in a, in a couple of days at the, at the Haas Center. Um, traditionally, over the years, journalism was sort of a one-way proposition. The journalists put the information out, and although you, the audience, might respond with a phone call or a letter, or on occasion even a telegram. Um, there weren't that many of those, and we were essentially free to ignore them. In the age of the internet, the web really goes in a 100,000 different directions. And the fact of the matter is that there are people out there engaging in the practice of journalism who not only have never been trained in the basics of journalism, but truly have no interest in the facts. They're more interested in what young people today refer to as clickbait. In other words, putting stuff out there that is going to get the maximum number of people to respond to it. That's very dangerous when what you are most concerned about is attracting the greatest attention, uh, which, interestingly enough, has traditionally been a function of journalism also. That's why we have big, uh, attractive headlines. That's why at the top of a television program, we try to give you a sense of the most interesting things that are going to happen later on in, in the television program. But Basically, what I'm talking about is that these days, the democratization of journalism, allowing anyone with access to a laptop computer to put the information out there and potentially to have an audience of many, many thousands, if not millions of people, based not on the accuracy of the journalism, but on the dramatic quality of the material that's being put out, that's dangerous. So tell us a little bit about how it's dangerous, perhaps in terms of democracy itself. Well, um, I don't know how we can expect the voting public to do an intelligent mm. job uh, of picking among candidates or focusing on different aspects of uh, an issue that is up for a vote before a town council or a state legislature or the Congress, the House or the Senate, how can we expect the American public to do an intelligent job of gauging the virtues of one over the other? 
if it cannot rely on the accuracy of the material that's being put out by the media. Yeah. Um, so is there any figure who influenced you as a journalist? Yes, uh, several. Uh, Edward R. Murrow was probably mm -hmm. the first. Uh, Eric Severide, uh, simply in terms of the, and I, I apologize to younger people out there, this is part of the problem. Um, you know, you start talking about, I, I, if, if I may just sort of divert for yeah. a moment, we used to have interns who would come to work at Nightline. Uh, and, and difficult as this may be to believe, when they came into my presence, they were in awe. <laughs> and I would try to explain to them that the, the half-life of a television anchor's fame is about 10 years. That after 10 years, another generation comes along. Uh, and, uh, you know, I often find, for example, when, I, when I'm speaking to classes here, and almost inevitably I'll ask, how many of you still watch a television newscast? The answer is zero, right? Every once in a while, someone wants to be charitable to me. Yes, I think I once saw one, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, where were we? I, just people, just people who'd influenced you, so, so oh, maybe people, Yes, so we, we had Ed Morrow, Eric Severide, Howard K. Smith. They are three names from another era altogether. Uh, they were three of the truly great broadcast journalists, not only of their time, but of all time. Uh, and I recommend to anyone who can get a hold of Eric Severide's great autobiography uh, called Not So Wild a Dream. It's probably the best book ever written by a journalist about journalism. Wonderful book. He was a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, he was a scholar. Howard K. Smith was a scholar, was a Oxford, as a matter of fact. Um, these, were, these were great broadcast journalists. And of all the 6,000 people you have interviewed, I do not expect you to remember them all, but no. is there one figure that stands out because of the impact their words had on you? Yes, and it's, it's not whom you would expect. Um, we did a story, uh, one of our producers came back and had found a story of this African-American a GI who had been in Vietnam, had a relationship with a young Vietnamese woman, uh, and had a daughter with her. When his tour was over, he came back to the United States, met a woman, they got married, they had a family, and 20 some odd years after he left Vietnam, he confided to his wife that he had had this relationship with a young Vietnamese woman and that there had been a daughter. And he wanted to go back to Vietnam and find that daughter. Uh, and his wife must have been a truly extraordinary person because she not only urged him to go and find that young woman, but urged her to bring the girl back to the United States, which he did. And uh, we arranged to find that young woman and we brought her on Nightline. And by then she already spoke very good English. 
and I remember the first question I asked her was, what was it about the United States that most impressed her? And she said, the sky. And I said, the sky? I spent the better part of three years in Vietnam, and I don't recall the sky being any different there than it is here. And she said, oh no, in Vietnam, I was much too embarrassed to look up. So reflecting on all the extraordinary events of the latter part of the 20th century that you've covered and that you've been witness to, what, what wisdom do you have to bring to our current precarious political world situation? Uh, A small question. You want, yeah, I was going to say, can, can we at least just start with the United States sure. before, we, before we go to the whole world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Remember that great line, <laughs> what profiteth a man, yeah. right? but for whales, <laughs> right? You remember that? Um, I think we need to find some way of reconnecting with one another. Um, there is a, a wonderful line, uh, it's one of my favorite all-time lines from uh, a great American philosopher, comedian, Will Rogers, again, back in the 1930s. Um, Will Rogers liked to say, you know, we're all ignorant, just about different things. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think part of what has happened in this country is uh, quite apart from uh, the terrible contributions that some of our political leaders have made to this process, um, we come to regard ourselves as belonging to a particularly brilliant, skillful, gifted body. And all those other people out there fall into some different category altogether. Well, I don't know about most of you, but I find that um, I have no trouble at all coming up with a tremendous list of things that I'm ignorant about. Not the least among them are many practical things. I could not shoot, gut, skin, process the meat of a deer that I had shot and provide meat for my family over a long winter. I couldn't fix my roof if it were leaking. I couldn't fix my car if it stopped functioning. Um, there are a thousand things that I can't do. And yet, particularly in a setting like this, at a great university like Stanford, we tend to focus on, on other indicators of merit. Um, and I'm, I'm not denigrating the great skills and, and the wisdom that is taught here. I'm just saying that's not all there is to it. And we are dangerously drifting. I mean, you've heard the term used 
over and over and over again in the last few years of tribalism. It is a tribalism that is based on denigrating the other tribe. I'm not suggesting that we don't legitimately fall into tribes. There are some of us who are more academically gifted and others who are more uh, practically gifted, but the one doesn't supersede the other. And we have to find a way of getting back together again, uh, of treating one another with respect rather than the contempt, which is the, the output of our cable television, of our talk radio, of our comedy programs, of any number of different ways in which we in which we undermine respect for one another. Thank you. So we're going to open the floor to questions in a moment, but I'm going to ask you one last, last question before that. As you may know, there is a radio program in England called Desert Island Discs. Oh, yes. In which someone gets interviewed, and they have to provide the eight pieces of music they would like to have <laughs> on a desert island if abandoned there. It's so unrealistic, right? And um, the luxury they would like to have and the book they would like to have. So we don't have time for eight pieces of music. Right. But how about one piece of music, one book, and the luxury you would want to have if you found yourself solo on a desert island? How, how long am I going to be stuck there? <laughs> Depends how quickly you can build a raft. Ah, yes. And you've just said you're not very practical, so let's say maybe a while. You know, this is... <laughs> This, this is one of those questions that, that um, Jane was kind enough to, to give me a heads up on. And initially, I started thinking about all the music I love. Mm. And then I thought, you know, even Mozart is going to get old after a while. And, uh, you know, rather than bringing something I love, I decided uh, I will bring some Mahler and some Bartok and... and music that I really hate. <laughs> because if I'm there long enough, I may develop an appreciation for it. Okay. Brave right? man. Brave right. man. Um, as, as far as the book is concerned, again, if, if I'm going to be there a relatively short period of time, I would go with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. But mm. if I'm going to be there for a long time, I'll go with the Talmud. Okay. Because that, that absolutely covers everything. Yeah. I'm not sure if they have a separate item on desert islands, but uh, as, as for the luxury, you know, you know those, those Japanese toilets that have the... We'll get one plumbed in for you. I mean, after, yes. I mean, after, after a long, hard day getting sand in all the wrong places. <laughs> can you think of anything you'd like more? <laughs> yeah. Terrific. Okay, so there are... <laughs> there are two microphones there, and um, if you'd like to come up to them, and uh, we'll choose from one side to the other. 
between us. Ted and I will negotiate that. And um, if you could say who you are and your affiliation to Stanford, if you have one. And more importantly, please try and refrain from making a great statement about the state of the world. Just ask one question that you would like Ted Koppel to answer, and one question only, because then we can have more people asking their questions. So let's start here. Name and question, please. Thank you. My name is Wyn Derman, and I graduated from the business school. I had the pleasure of meeting you the other day and said to you, thank you for being you. <laughs> and you looked at me and said, well, I didn't have any other choice That's about true, it. Yeah. Which made a big impression on me. So I'd like to ask you, since you and I are of the same generation, have we so screwed up this world for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that they won't have any hope of living the kind of wonderful lives we had an opportunity to live? Oh, I'm, I'm not prepared to be quite that pessimistic. Um, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure that I accept the burden that you are thrusting on the two of us here. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think the younger generation is doing a pretty effective job of screwing things up also. <laughs> um, and we have, been, we have been through some pretty, I mean, not we, not you and I, but mankind has been through some pretty awful periods. I mean, the Hundred Years' War was no picnic. The plague was something of a disaster. Uh, you know, our own civil war was a particularly bad time in our history. Uh, you know, on a much lesser scale, the McCarthy era was not a was not a great period in our more recent history. Um, uh, you know, we've seen better, but we've also seen worse. Uh, and while I focused on our extraordinary ability to communicate as being something that scares me in terms of how it's being misused, there is within that capacity to communicate across vast distances at the speed of light with millions of people simultaneously. There lies within that the seed, the potential seed, of some answers to the problems that we confront. So, you know, let's at least let's at least leave open the possibility that things may not be quite as bad as you suggest. Thank you. Thank you so Gen much for that ray of hope. Thank right. gentleman in the purple shirt. Hi, my name is John Michael. I'm an alum and I'm also at the School of Medicine. And I wanted to ask you, so you used the word accuracy a couple times in talking about um, your time at Nightline, that sort of thing. So my question is how do you, or how did you, kind of develop your barometer for accuracy? Uh, because I think that's increasingly challenging with such partisan news sources. Um, it's, it's a terrific question, and I'm not sure I can give you a, a very satisfactory answer. Um, certainly not within these hallowed halls, but I'm gonna do it anyway. If there's one thing that a lifetime in journalism teaches you, or develops for you. It is an excellent bullshit detector. <laughs> you can, you know, I'm pretty good when I'm interviewing somebody at recognizing when they're trying to lead me in a direction that I don't think the facts should take us. Mm. Um, and there, there are actually few things in the world better suited 
to separating fact from fiction than an intelligent interview. Asking questions, listening to the answers. One of the, one of the first things that I tend to tell young journalists, particularly in, in my line of work, radio, television, um, is don't come in with a list of questions because your tendency then is going to be, uh, you know, the person is going to say, and uh, that's when I ran away with my best friend's wife, and you're saying, well, question number two, and you pay no attention whatsoever <laughs> to the answer. You've got to listen in an interview. In fact, listening is probably more important than the, than the questions that are asked. Thank you. Hello, thank you for being here. Hello, I'm Mary yeah. Jane Perrine, a historian by training who worked here for 20 years as a curator in the library. And uh, I have a question about something, just to sort of shake your memory, especially in the area of polarization of our society. You did a wonderful job of encouraging many people here at Stanford uh, the Friday after the attacks of 9-11 you had a nightline program involving a person from our Department of Religious Life here named Father Patrick LaBelle. And you talked with him about polarization and about scapegoating and that sort of thing, and it was prophetic. So I just wondered if you remembered it first of all and if you um, uh, also got any response to that or, or have considered that as part of your journalistic life later on. I'm very embarrassed to say no, I don't. Well, that's good. I can tell you about it later because oh, I, I'm, a no, I, I'm a historian right. who, who does a history, did a history of Catholic life, so I'd like Thank to you. be able to make it available by Well, NBC. I mean, the only, thing, the only thing I would say in my defense, uh, and, and Jane was kind enough to point out that over the 26 years that I did Nightline, I did 6,000 programs. And the only way, I, I sort of would wipe my memory clean as soon as I got off the air with one show and then start focusing on the next one. So, Thank you. I think we'd like to move on to the next question, if that's all right. Thank you so much. So the gentleman with the hooded sweatshirt on the other side, thank you. Hello. What my is your name, Great. My name is Tommy Liu. I am an alum and current staff member at the Graduate School of Education. My question is um, about, well, you've had a number of successes in your life. Can you tell me about a failure that has influenced the tra trajectory of your life? Very Stanford question, thank you. Wow. <laughs> no, hard as I may think, I can't think of any failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next question. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Nancy Hamilton. I'm a graduate student in East Asian Studies. And I feel a bit of a connection with you because you spoke at my uh, commencement exercises uh, in 1987. Um, maybe you remember that one. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, my question for you is about the implications of the internet on journalism, and you touched a bit on the negative implications of that. And I'm wondering, given the sort of um, media situation that we're facing with the internet, how do we encourage young people to go into journalism and produce the kind of investigative reporting that we need in this age? Well, that's it's certainly the right question. Yeah. Uh, and I wish I could tell you that I've, that I've come up with a, with a smart answer for it. Um, 
the only answer that, that I can give you at this point is the country has never needed good journalism more than it needs it right now. And I would suggest to all of you who are, after all, consumers of journalism, whether you whether you read the New York Times every day, or whether you listen to NPR, or whether you listen to Rush Limbaugh, or whether you watch Hannity, uh, you know, you're gathering information. Um, I would simply urge you to focus on those sources of information that, that are most closely associated with facts rather than ideology. Uh, we are spending too much time these days searching for others who already share our predisposition toward one prejudice or another. Um, that may be satisfying from a social point of view. It is the worst possible thing for a democracy. Thank you very much. Next question. Hello, my name is Dan Feeder. I'm a rabbi in the community. On the 40th anniversary of racial integration in baseball, you did an interview with Al Campanis. Yes. And he gave an answer that played to all kinds of racial stereotypes. And you said, refreshingly, that sounds like a lot of garbage. I'm wondering what the reaction at the network was then. And if you were doing that interview today, what would you say to Al Campanis? Oh, look, I mean, for those of you who, who are not old enough to remember that interview. It, Al Campanis was a vice president for the LA Dodgers. He was actually a fundamentally decent man. And the reason we had invited him on the program was because he had been Jackie Robinson's roommate in 1947. That was a big deal in 1947 for a white guy in baseball to be rooming with an African-American. And um, I had had, just prior to interviewing Al Campanis, I had had Rachel Robinson on the program, Jackie Robinson's widow, and had asked her what her perception was of the advances that had been made in Major League Baseball for African-Americans. And, and, and her reaction was, was fairly tough. She said, look, we still don't have a lot of coaches. We don't have any managers. We don't have, and, and it was that which prompted me then to ask Al Campanis why he thought that was the case. And he famously or infamously said, well, maybe it's because they don't have the necessities, really, right? That African-Americans don't have the necessities to be managers in Major League Baseball. And we went through a couple of cycles of my trying to signal him that he had said something really foolish. Uh, and he just wasn't, and I said, look, let's take a commercial break, and when we come back, I'll ask you again. And he, you know, one of, the first, one of the first rules of good politics is when you've dug yourself into a hole, stop digging. 
Well, he grabbed that shovel and he just dug and he dug. Um, the, the reaction at ABC was, wow, that was a hell of a program. The reaction at the Los Angeles Dodgers was, you're out. He was fired the next day. He was a vice president of the LA Dodgers, he was fired. There's a postscript to that story. Um, a, an African-American athlete sociologist by the name of Harry Edwards, who I think may still be over at Berkeley, um, called Campanus and invited him to come out to Berkeley and teach a couple of courses with him. And Al Campanus called me, he'd heard that I was in LA, and he called me and asked if we could have a cup of coffee together, and we did. And he just wanted to say, it was probably, you know, I thought it was the worst thing in my life that had happened. It has turned out to be, in some respects, one of the better things in my life that's happened. So, all in all, I think it turned out pretty well. Thank you. I'm Matthew Grayson, I'm staff at the School of Medicine, and I'm wondering how confident you are at identifying your purpose in life, and what, some, um, what helps you with that confidence? Um, I can honestly tell you, I never, I cannot recall ever wanting to be a policeman or a fireman or a professional athlete, all I ever wanted to do was to be a journalist. And I think that may be because I recognized early on that I didn't have any competence to be anything other <laughs> than a journalist. I knew I was good at asking questions. I was a fairly competent writer. And the idea, I have to tell you, Edward R. Murrow, I'm, I'm going to assume that most of you know who Edward R. Murrow was. Uh, and he was a CBS radio correspondent in London during World War II. And some of his broadcasts for CBS were considered uh, so helpful by the British government that they rebroadcast them on the BBC. So even when I was a very, very young kid, I, my father listened to Edward R. Murrow, listened to his broadcasts, and somehow I have always been convinced that hearing those broadcasts let me know early on, that's what I want to do. Thank you. I think we have time for one short question and one short brief answer. answer. Yeah. Short no, answer. no stress, thanks. Um, Go ahead, you can ask a longer question, I'll give you a very short answer. I got it, no problem. All right, Ted, um, thanks for coming in. I want to actually ask you both one question. My name's Jake, uh, I'm a faculty here, and you're coming to my class on Wednesday to talk to my students about storytelling. Um, I want to ask as a, and they're gonna ask all the questions, so this is my chance to ask you guys this question, which is, you mentioned the uh, Stanford is really geared up on the how things are done. You get craft training, you get skill training, you mentioned the ethics, and embedded in that is the why things are done. And I'm curious if between the two of you, if you can share with me or us, um, what are those ethics? So there's your small question. Tiny. Uh, can, I, can, I, can I give a slightly longer answer? You could do what you like. We've just got to make sure you get to the next thing. 
Um, many years ago, my old friend Sam Donaldson, who is uh, probably one of the best-known White House correspondents of all time, Sam Donaldson and I were floor correspondents at a presidential convention. And we had been at a rehearsal for that evening's broadcast in the evening uh, while a major committee meeting was underway. And so before the broadcast began that evening, Sam and I told the anchor man, a fellow by the name of Harry Wiesner, Harry, whatever you do, don't ask us about the credentials committee hearing, because we were at the rehearsal and we don't know what happened at the credentials committee hearing. <laughs> the program begins and Harry Wiesner says, so the story of the day is the credentials committee hearing. <laughs> Gentlemen, what do you have? And Sam didn't miss a beat. He took his microphone and he said, Ted? <laughs> so in response to that question, Jane? I knew it was coming, thank you. You really want me to answer it? Of course. Okay. So I'll just say what I said in Faculty Senate not very long ago when we were talking about the long-range planning for the university, uh, which is focusing quite rightly on solving the world's many problems, which is very important. And it's solving problems is what Stanford faculty and students and alums have been good at for so very long. However, as a humanities professor, that, that's the hat I'm wearing at this minute, as well as Dean for Religious Life, I think it's really important that we teach students uh, to understand the human condition and that's partly about how you connect with others who are different from you, but it's also sometimes about understanding that there are some problems we cannot solve. If someone walks into my office or the office of one of my associate deans here and says, someone I love died, then that's not a problem that any of us can solve. We can help with the grieving process. We can help host a memorial service, but at the end of the day, we have to have some understanding of the human condition in order to be able to connect to that person. So for me, that the component of education that's always going to be important, which largely resides in the humanities, but not only in the humanities, of course, is that we enable students to learn how to connect to one another. So well on that done. note, well thank done. you. <laughs> so on that note, I think before we thank uh, Ted, I'd just like to draw your attention to a little survey that you each got, it's very small. Please do fill it out. Uh, because we always like to know how you heard about the event and who else you would like to have come and be a speaker in these events on what matters to people and why and what it means to lead a meaningful life. So please give that in as you leave and all requires now is for me to say a huge thank you on behalf of us all to Ted for this great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.